Good morning, church. Please open up to Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 23. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad to have you with us. The way we uh, normally do things is we preach through like whole books of the Bible at a time. So we've been in Romans for a while, and this is just the next, uh, next passage we're at. So Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 23, the title of the sermon is Real Christian Unity Part 3. And if you are physically able to stand for the reading of God's Word, please do, as I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. So Paul, the apostle, writes this, starting in verse 13. He says, Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be slandered, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. So then, let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. It is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that is not from faith is sin. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just pray that you would be with us this morning as we go into your word. We pray that we would rightly divide your word of truth and understand what it's saying, that uh, we would rightly be able to apply it to our lives and the way we live. We pray, God, that, uh, that you would just give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word, that you would remove me as much as possible, Lord. This text might seem so distant from our time right now, and yet it is so incredibly important. And Christian unity is so incredibly important. And so, Lord, may we heed what you say, and, and may you be glorified in this. May your people be edified, and may those who don't know you come to know you today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen. Please have a seat. <clears throat> in the last two sermons, we've been talking about how Christians often divide the church over preferences. Now, some people, for example, like what, what we see in this chapter is some people believe there is a bigger list of rules that we're supposed to follow, like a list more than what the Bible actually says. And so what happens is they get hypercritical and judgmental against those who don't follow their extra rules. But then on the other side, you have Christians who reject those extra rules, but then at the same time in their heart, they despise those who keep those extra rules. In fact, they start thinking that having these people around gets in the way of our right to do the things that the Bible doesn't forbid. And so we'd, a lot of times we'd rather them not to be around. So what happens is, is people become overly concerned with their rights and would rather not have to deal with other believers who disagree with them on those liberties or rights. So what ends up happening in this kind of scenario? Well, Christians end up being awful to each other. Churches split. They slander each other. 
And then the watching world shakes their head the next time somebody tries to tell them that Jesus is the solution to their problems. Because they look at the church and say, well, look at all the problems you guys still have. Now, of course, what I just said there should not surprise any Bible reading or Bible believing Christian. What did Jesus say in John chapter 13, verse 35? He said this, he said, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. We just sang this, didn't we? We just got done singing about this truth. And I've actually quoted this passage in the last two sermons, okay? Because it's the key. The world will know we are Christians by our love for one another. Problem is, rather than believe it, many Christians would rather split from one another rather than to learn to live with each other who, and to live with others who have different opinions on things that don't ultimately matter, okay? They, and when they do so, when people split over opinions that don't really matter, they weaken our gospel witness to the world because now the world doesn't see our love and now they don't think we are Jesus's disciples. So Romans chapter 14 and the first half of chapter 15 provides the solution to this kind of problem. It does so by dealing with a similar kind of situation, but one that's way more serious than the little things that people fight for in our land, you know, within the churches, right? And so if what this chapter says can solve like the big issue that's brought up in this chapter, if it could solve it on a big level, it could also solve the little level versions that we tend to have to deal with in our culture, okay? So Paul's already laid the groundwork in the first 12 verses, now, in the next 11 verses of this chapter, he starts getting down to the details uh, towards a solution. See, ultimately, these kind of fights prove that believers are failing to love each other. That's what Paul's going to show us in the next two sermons, that these kind of fights show that we're not loving each other. Okay, So, it's going to take me two sermons to get through the 11 verses that, that we just read. And the point for the 11 verses is this, if you're a note taker. The main point is we must stop putting stumbling blocks before fellow Christians. We must stop putting fellow, uh, stumbling blocks before fellow Christians. Question is, how? How? Well, Paul's going to tell us how with two principles, real easy principles. The first principle is know what God says about this. Second principle, do what God says about this, right? So you want to know how to not put stumbling blocks in front of other believers? Know what God says about this, then do what God says about this. This morning, we're going to get through the first of those, knowing what God says about this, right? Because when we put stumbling blocks in front of our fellow believers, then that proves we're not showing love. Yet ultimately, to have unity, it's going to be built on biblical love. So, as we jump into the text, we need to know where this text fits in the bigger picture of the book of Romans. As I told you, we don't just randomly pick texts. We go through whole books of the Bible. So, you got to know where this text fits, right? This chapter is one of the main reasons that Paul wrote the book of Romans in the first place. This is Paul the Apostle's most famous letter, and he wrote it to fix the problem that this chapter is talking about. See, the church in Rome back then was starting to fall apart. Why? You had two kinds of Christians that were in the Roman church at this time. You had Jewish people who believed that Jesus is the Messiah, right? That was one kind of Christian. Then you had Gentiles, which means non-Jews, people from the nations, who also believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And they're trying to be in one church together, but they are very different culturally, okay? Now, about 10 years before Paul wrote Romans, the apostles all got together in Acts chapter 15 to address this issue. 
And what they decided and what they wrote in a letter that went out to all the churches was that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, do not have to follow the law of Moses. They don't have to circumcise. They don't have to keep the Sabbath. They don't have to keep the food laws of the Old Testament. They don't have to, right? Why? First, it's unnecessary for salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. And then second, if you were to force them to keep these extra rules, it would only cause more problems for them back then. See, if you were a Gentile, and you abandoned your paganism to become a Christian, your neighbors already hate you. If you're going to then abandon those old religions and then act like a Jew, they're going to hate you even double because they didn't like the Jews. So pretty much what the Jerusalem Council said is, look, believing in Jesus is enough. You don't have to add these extra Jewish cultural things to your life. You don't have to keep Sabbath. You don't have to keep the food laws. But for the Jewish believers, it's a little different. They were still, by and large, expected to keep a lot of the Old Testament customs. And I proved that when we looked at Acts chapter 21, verses 21 through 24. Paul shows up, and James, the brother of the Lord, as well as the Jerusalem elders, say that, look, Paul, we know that you're not telling Jews to abandon Moses and to stop circumcising their kids and to stop keeping the Sabbaths. We know it's not true, so we have a solution for you to prove it's not true. So the idea is Jewish believers in Jesus will still keep those cultural things from the Old Testament, by and large, okay? Gentile ones don't have to, okay? So Paul was the type of guy when he was around Israelites, he would keep them. When he couldn't keep these these Old Testament laws, then it didn't bug him too much. And that's the way it's supposed to be. See, Jewish believers in Christ should try to keep that stuff, but they don't have to. It's not an actual requirement, Gentiles shouldn't even tell them to do it, right? Okay? So, the, so, again, there's a problem in the Roman church. The Jerusalem letter that I just talked about from Acts 15 was supposed to make it to where Jewish and Gentile believers could do church together. But in Rome, they weren't. They're having a hard time staying together. Why? It's because the Gentile, the non-Jewish Christians, insisted on eating a whole bunch of non-kosher food at the potlucks. See, every, every Sunday worship service, they would have a potluck, and then they'd have the Lord's Supper at the end of the potluck. Now, they called that potluck a, a love feast. And so imagine walking into that potluck, and there's pork and sausage and lobster tails, and you're just a Jew, and you're like, you know, you're not even going to get to the Lord's table for the Lord's Supper, right? And so, the, But the Gentile Christians were insisting on this. The Jewish Christians in Rome said, look, we, we can't do this. We can't partake of the Lord's Supper if you keep bringing this stuff to the love feast. But then the Gentiles were like, too bad. Too bad. God declared all foods clean, so get over it. But then the Jewish believers in response would be like, look, God gave our people kosher as a gift, and we don't want to violate our conscience on this. And so neither side would budge. And this put the Jewish believers in a hard spot, right? It's not like they can refuse to take the Lord's Supper. Jesus commands all believers to take communion or the Lord's Supper regularly. But also, these guys, due to their conscience, can't take it in the gatherings as they were happening with all that stuff around that they thought was unclean. So they're in a situation where if they don't take the Lord's Supper, they're sinning. But then if they do, and yet they're violating their conscience, they're still sinning. So what's the only option for them? It seemed that the only option for them was to separate from the church. And that is a real, true crisis. It would split the church. It would make it smaller and weaker. It would make Christianity look powerless to both pagan unbelievers and Jewish unbelievers. 
right? See, the gospel says that in Jesus Christ, Jews and Gentiles and all different kinds of people become one body, that the wall has come down. But here you have a situation in Rome where they're saying the gospel makes us one, but we're going to act like we're two. And it makes the gospel look like it's a lie, right? And the sad thing is, this is totally 100% preventable. These guys in this church are not understanding a key implication of the gospel. And that is why Paul wrote the letter of Romans in the first place. He wants to fix this before it's too late. He wants to fix it before they, they split. He wants the Roman church to thrive because his plan is to have that church send him to Spain to get the gospel even beyond where it has reached at that point. Okay, So if you've ever wondered why the book of Romans is the way it is, it's all because of this issue. You often hear in, in our Reformed circles that Paul wrote the book of Romans as a theological treatise of the gospel. He did not. It's his biggest gospel presentation, but he was not writing a systematic theology of the gospel. No, he gives the biggest gospel presentation in Romans because the gospel is precisely what will fix this problem. Okay, If you pay attention to the details of how he lays the gospel out in the first 11 chapters, it is entirely geared towards what he is talking about in Romans 14. Okay, See, these people understood how the gospel saved them, but they're missing at how the gospel is supposed to lead to unity within the church. So he starts with the gospel in detail. What does he tell us from the beginning of this book to now? That both Jews and Gentiles are sinners. Everybody's a sinner, right? Both Jews and Gentiles need the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to be saved. No one can be saved apart from that. That's chapters 1 through 3. What about Abraham? He tells us both Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus are now the children of Abraham. Notice, he keeps hitting both. See, Abraham was saved before he was circumcised, which makes him like a Gentile. But then in obedience to God and devotion, he later got circumcised, which makes him like a Jew. And Paul's saying he's the father of both. In Christ Jesus, he is the father of both. Okay? And then in chapter, and that's, that's chapter 4. Then chapters 5 through 8, Paul takes it a little deeper. He says, you know what? It's not even so much a Jew-Gentile thing. It's a sin thing. And even then, it's not a law thing that the Jews have the law and the Gentiles don't. It's an Adam thing. Everybody, both Jew and Gentile, are born in Adam, the first man. And Adam fell. So we all fall with him. We're all sinners like Adam was. So what we need, whether you're Jew or Gentile, is to be taken out of Adam and put in union with Christ. Right? That's the greatest need. Okay, and, and, and then we're both Jew and Gentile enslaved to sin. We are born as slaves with shackles to sin. That is why everybody cannot, everybody goes their whole life sinning multiple times. There is nobody who can go their whole life and not sin. That proves we are slaves to sin. And so we need to be set free by Christ, both Jews and Gentiles. You could be a Jew with the law of Moses, you're still a slave to sin. You need Christ to break those chains. Furthermore, you need to be in union with Christ. You need to be set free from sin, as I just said. And what paints the picture of that? We're going to see three of them today. Baptism, right? Yet Jews and Gentiles both have the same baptism. Not a different one for each group, but the same. Both Jews and Gentiles still have the same struggle and fight against sin, according to chapter 7. And yet both receive the same Holy Spirit in chapter 8, is what it says. And we receive the Holy Spirit by faith, the third person of the Trinity which guarantees we'll make it to the finish line, right? So there's no real difference between the two groups. The gospel is saving both groups. And then just in case 
Some of the Gentiles assume that God's now favoring them over Israel. Paul uses chapters 9 through 11 to correct that. He says, no, God made promises to Israel, and as such, they're irrevocable. But right now, salvation is coming to the Gentiles so that God could save the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the nations. And when that draws to a close, then every Israelite that's still alive will come to Christ and be saved, and you'll have the fullness of Israel. And so what is the vision of the gospel? That by the time we get to the end, you have the fullness of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Jews saved together, the resurrection of the dead happens, and then comes the consummation of the kingdom of God in its fullest. That is what Paul has been showing his whole way. Now, don't you see in that summary, the way in which Paul presented the gospel throughout this entire book was leading to this issue of Jews and Gentiles being united to each other? That's why he kept focusing on both of them throughout the whole gospel presentation. Everything in this book was about how God saves both so that both could be together. And then the primus for this, starting in chapter 12, he told the church how the gospel should start causing us to live, that our whole lives are an act of worship to God, that we use our gifts for the church, that we conduct ourselves before the world and before the government in a certain way. And then at the end of chapter 13, he tells us that love fulfills the law. Whether somebody has the law of Moses or doesn't, if you're loving your neighbor, you are fulfilling the law, and that will lead to unity. And so all that is what then gets us to chapter 14, where he finally gets to the issue of what he was writing this book about in the first place. And so the last two sermons, we looked at verses 1 through 12, where Paul kind of set some definitions for us. The Jewish believers who want to keep the Sabbath and want to keep kosher food laws, they were called the weaker brothers. The reason they're weaker is not because they're keeping them, They're weaker because they think they have to keep them, that they're sinning if they don't keep them. And so they're wrong on that. And they're the weaker brothers, but they're not in sin by keeping it. And so Paul told us in the first 12 verses that when they keep Sabbath and they keep kosher, they're doing this for God. So give them a break, right? And then concerning the Gentiles, he says they're, in this case, the stronger brothers because they eat all kinds of food. And they don't need to keep a special day. They understand that all food's good and every day is alike. And when they eat whatever they, when they eat that lobster tail, okay, they're doing what they do to honor the Lord. So both are doing what they do to honor the Lord. Question is, what's the problem then? The problem was each side is trying to force the other side to conform to their way of doing things. The ones who follow the extra rules that are unnecessary, they judge those who don't. And then the ones who enjoy the liberties that God gives us and don't follow the extra rules, they despise the people who do. Foolish Sabbath keeper. You know, they start start despising them. And Paul told them, stop. Stop. Stop judging each other. Stop despising each other over these things. These are not sin matters. These are preferential opinions. In fact, he ends verse 12 by saying, all of us are going to stand before God's judgment seat and give an account right? You don't have to give an account to anybody else here for your preferences, but you will give an account to God for how you judged and treated people over your preferences. That's what Paul's saying. So he's saying, wise up. And that's where he ended in verse 12. Don't despise each other over preferences. Don't judge each other over this. And then I just want to throw this caveat before we jump into our text this morning. I know that's a lot of buildup, but none of this that I've said applies to sin. When it comes to sin, that is not a preference. Well, to me, I prefer to commit adultery. No, it doesn't work that way. Sin is never acceptable. We all must hold each other accountable for sin. That means we all must be, at times, biblically judgmental, right? 
to, to hold each other into conformity with the scripture. Now, when it comes to preferences, no. And the problem is too many people fight over preferences, and then they ignore sin. That's the crazy thing. They won't hold each other accountable for sin in a lot of churches, but they will split over preferences. And I'm like, are we in the twilight zone? That's what it seems like. Okay? So anyway, on matters that are technically not sin, there is freedom. Okay? And people are fighting over that freedom. So with all the big picture stuff laid out, now we can think about the subject correctly. So for the rest of the chapter, we're now going to see what this looks like on a practical level. So if you look at verse 13 with me, Paul states the main point of the text right here in the first verse. Okay? And the main point is a command for all of us. He writes this. He says, Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or a pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. Now, before I break it down, you can see that the first word is therefore. And whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask, what's the therefore therefore? I know that's corny, but it really helps you think about it. The therefore is calling your attention back to what was just said. Think about the times in life you say therefore. And if you're like, I never say therefore, get in the practice. You sound epic when you do, okay? But the thing is, whenever you say therefore, it's because you just made a point. And you're like, therefore, and then you're going to tell them what to think or do in light of that point. Paul's point was verse 12. You're good. Don't judge each other because you're going to stand before God and give an account. Therefore, verse 13, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. Now, there's two things he's commanding us in this therefore, right? First, stop judging other believers. In fact, if you look closely, he says, no longer judge one another. What does that mean? That means that's exactly what they're doing. They're judging. He's saying, knock it off. Stop. And let's be real. This is what most of us do. You can probably look at any group of Christians anywhere in the world and tell them to stop judging each other, and then all their heads are going to go down, because this is a problem that we all struggle with. It's a real problem. And even though it's usually the weaker Christian the one that follows all the extra rules that tends to be super judgmental. In this case, the fact is both were being judgmental, okay? So Paul says, stop. That's the first command. Now, the second thing he commands is this. He says, quote, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. Now, there's a play on words here in the Greek. The Greek word for decide is the same word for judge. Our translations just Do it different because they think it flows smoother. But what he's saying is don't longer, don't no longer, or stop judging each other. No longer judge one another, but judge you this. Judge yourself to never put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother and sister. That's the only judgment we should be making when it comes to preferences. Don't judge them for their preference or yours. Judge yourself to not put a stumbling block in front of them. Now, this whole principle of not putting a stumbling block comes straight out of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 14. So from the law of Moses. And what it says is pretty much he tell, God tells Israel to not, quote, put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but you are to fear your God. I am the Lord. So he's telling them, you don't put a stumbling block in front of the blind. You see, the blind cannot see. That's why they're blind. They don't know where they're going. And so it's real easy for people who can see to put something down that the person who can't see will trip over. Or it's real easy to dig a pit and watch them walk into it, 
right? The person who can see has this advantage that the person who can't see doesn't have. Now, you might be wondering, what does the blind have to do with our text? It's real simple. Paul is going to show us that the strong believers, the ones who understand that there's not all these extra rules about food anymore, he's saying they see things more accurately. They see better. They see the situation better than the weak. So they have to take care. Imagine if you lived in a small town where there's a lot of blind people, like half the people are blind, half the people can see, right? But what if the people who built the town built everything only for those who could see? What would happen to the blind as they try to walk around that town? They're going to fall over again and again and again, injure themselves, potentially even kill themselves. Now, all the people who could see, were they being malicious? Were they trying to build a a town where the blind will get killed or injured? No. But the problem is they were assuming that everyone should be able to see like I can see. And so let's create a situation that's for us and not be considerate of others. Okay, And so then what happens is it's that lack of consideration that makes the people who are weaker in vision, who can't see, they start falling down. Well, it's the same kind of thing here. Okay, What this shows us so far is that Paul's entire point in our text this morning is actually focused on the strong brothers. He's not saying anything to the weaker brothers for the most part for the rest of the chapter. This onus is entirely on the stronger brother, the one who can see things clearly. In the first half of the chapter... Verses 1 through 12, he hit both, the strong and the weak, and he was correcting them, right? But now, he's only focusing on the strong. The only ones who could prevent this Roman church from splitting are the strong believers. The weak ones can't, okay? Why? Well, it's the same way with the blind. Can the blind create a town where they're not going to fall down? No, only those who can see are able to create a place where the blind people won't fall, Okay, and, and yes, it might annoy the people who could see to now have to walk around all these guardrails. Well, now it takes me an extra minute to get to the, the door or whatever. But love means I will put up with that extra little inconvenience if it means the blind will be safe. But who's the only one who could set that up? The one who can see, not the blind. Right? Same thing. The only ones who could prevent that church from splitting here are the ones who could see clearly, the ones who Paul says are strong. So here in verse 13, Paul stated the point very clearly. Do not put stumbling blocks before your fellow Christians. But that does beg another question. What is a stumbling block? What is a pitfall? What does this mean in this text? And the reason you might be thinking that is people often misuse this chapter to say that a stumbling block is something that offends you. They'll say, well, if something you do offends another Christian, you've stumbled them and you need to stop. That is not what this is talking about. Stumbling someone is way different than offending someone. Now, rather than explain that now, I think it'll be best if we just keep moving through the text because what stumbling means will become very clear as we move along. So again, the point is we must stop putting stumbling blocks before fellow Christians. And as I said at the beginning, how? Two principles. Know what God says, do what God says. Verses 14 through 18, we get to see the knowing what God says, right? What do we need to know about this so that we stop doing this to each other? So in the first part of verse 14, Paul states the truth objectively in very clear terms. He says this in verse 14, the first half. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about food right? He's talking about food, and and that seems confusing to modern audiences, but I mentioned this two sermons ago. 
in most pagan cities, all the meat was sacrificed to, to the idols, to the false gods. And so the Jews thought it was polluted. Like that meat might be fine, but you used it to worship pretty much a demon. We're not going to touch that meat. Okay. And, and what Paul's saying is that, look, all food ultimately is fine. You don't have to worry about that stuff because those demons aren't real and all that. Anyway, if you pray over that food, you'll be fine. But what gets added to this is in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Leviticus, God declared that a lot of animals were unclean for food, specifically for Israel and only for Israel. And the reason God did that was to separate Israel from all the other nations because God was creating this nation almost to incubate them so that he could write the scripture through them and bring forth the Messiah through them. And so they had to be separate from the nations for that. That's what was happening in the Old Testament. But now Jesus has come. The Messiah has come, and now that he's come, God is no longer separating Israel from the nations anymore. Instead, he's inviting the nations into Israel, into the commonwealth of Israel, to join the Jews at the table. So the food laws that used to separate Israel were no longer necessary because God is expanding Israel to include the Gentiles, okay? Now, so so what Paul is saying is things are now back to how they were before the, like right after the flood. Right after the flood, God told Noah that, hey, you could eat all the kinds of animals. They're all okay for eating. What he's saying is it's that way again, okay? So even though Paul himself was a devout Jew and he grew up spending his whole life eating kosher and and believing that some foods were unclean, he now knows because of Jesus, all food is okay. God's mission is now expanding to the Gentiles, okay? Now, how does Paul know this? Look again at what he said. In verse 14, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So he's telling you two different ways. He's like, I know it and I'm convinced of it or I'm persuaded of it. And so why is he persuaded of it? He says he's persuaded, look closely, in the Lord Jesus. That is why he's persuaded. Now, that should make us ask, well, what does that mean, in the Lord Jesus? It means Paul's been told that Jesus taught this during his earthly ministry. This is what Jesus taught. He made it clear that all food was technically okay. None of it will actually defile you. Look at Mark chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. I'll have it up here as well. But this is what Jesus is telling the crowds. It says this, he said to them, are you also as lack, are you also as lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it is going into his heart, or it's not going into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person's what defiles him, for within, for from within, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And defile a person. Okay? So what Jesus is saying is that all the immoral things that make us dirty before the Lord, it's all those internal sinful things that come out of our heart. The stuff you eat is just going to go to your stomach and then you know where it goes after that. That's not going to make you unclean. Okay? And then in the middle of all that, Mark added this editorial comment where he said, thus he declared all foods clean. Right? He's letting everybody know ultimately that's what Jesus is saying. Now, we do know that the apostles, even after hearing this, they were slow learners, especially in the Gospels, especially at the beginning. And even after the Holy Spirit was poured out, the first 10 chapters of Acts, almost all the Christians are Jews at that point, and so they're still eating kosher. 
It's not until chapter 10 that Jesus has to tell Peter again, all food is clean. And so what happens in Acts chapter 10 is Jesus lowers, he puts Peter in a vision state, lowers a sheet with all these animals on it and says, kill and eat. But a lot of the stuff was the food that's unclean. Peter says, I've never touched anything that's unclean. And then in Acts chapter 10, verse 15, here's what Jesus says to him. It says, again, a second time, the voice said to him, what God has made clean, do not call impure or unclean, right? Now, Jesus was talking about two things there. He's first saying the food's not unclean anymore. I've declared it clean. And I've declared the Gentiles, the nations, also to be clean. God has declared them both clean. And these two truths go hand in hand. If the gospel goes to the nations and God is cleansing the people of the nations by saving them through Jesus, then the food of the nations is also going to be cleansed. It has to be. Because where does a lot of fellowship and preaching happen? Across the table when people are eating together, right? In terms of hospitality. If you reject somebody's food, hey, I got a message that could save your life. They're like, oh, okay, I want to hear it. Here, have this lobster tail. And you're like, yeah. You've now broke all the rules of hospitality in hospitality cultures. They're not going to listen to your gospel. So the point is, if God is cleansing the nations, he's cleansing their food. All food is now okay for the Jewish people, and it's always been okay for the Gentile people, right? That's the objective truth. And Paul, so Paul knew what Jesus said. He likely knew what Peter's vision was all about. And Paul clearly embraced this truth himself. Much later in his life, before he dies, he's writing to a young pastor named Timothy, And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, he writes this. He says, for everything, not some things, not kosher. He says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. Now, Paul's talking about food in that context. And what he's saying is, he's like, look, if you thank God for it and you pray over that food, it's clean. It's now kosher. Okay, all food is kosher. Just thank God for it and pray for it. It's holy, right? And Paul was so convinced by this truth that even before he wrote Timothy, he told the believers and the Colossian believers to not let anybody judge them over food. Look what he says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He says, therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Okay? Now, I want us to think about this because, again, we're, Paul's at first laying out what's the objective truth. All food's clean, right? And this is a big part of it. It's true that God did command Israel to keep the Sabbath, and, and he commanded them to keep kosher and to eat and only drink certain things. He told them to keep all those special feasts, the seven feasts that are found in Leviticus 23. Okay? All of those were signs that pointed to Christ. They were shadows that pointed to Christ. So think about it. The Sabbath, how does that point to Christ? Because Jesus is our eternal rest. He is the Sabbath, right? We will rest forever in Christ. Think about the Passover. Jesus is the Passover lamb who turned away the wrath of God from us forever. So he is the Passover. What about the Feast of First Fruits? Jesus was raised from the dead on the day of the Feast of First Fruits. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. So he is also the Feast of First Fruits. And what did Jesus do on the day of Pentecost? He poured out the Holy Spirit upon those who would believe on him. So Jesus also is the Feast of Pentecost. 
And think of the Feast of Tabernacles where Jews build the little temporary uh, huts in their backyard. The Bible, John chapter 1, says Jesus tabernacled among us. When he, as God, became a man, that human body was like a tent to him. So he is the Feast of Tabernacles, right? And, and, and think about what kosher was. It was holiness, holy food that sets you apart from the sinful world. Jesus is our holiness that sets us apart from the world. When we are in him, we are not in Adam. So Jesus is the kosher food, if you think about it. My point is, all those things are shadows. They're signs that pointed to Christ. He is the substance. He is the real thing. If you obsess over the shadow, excuse me, if you obsess over the shadow rather than the substance, you've missed the point. That would be like caring more about your wedding ring than your actual spouse in marriage. Think about that. Ah, oh, my precious, you know, or whatever. But then you neglect your family. You, you don't care about them. Look, the ring is the symbol of your relationship, but you and your spouse together are the substance of that relationship. So clinging to the shadows is as dumb as clinging to the ring but ignoring the marriage, right? Now, <clears throat> as I said in the last few sermons, though, even though God does not demand that the Jews have to keep kosher, there is still the expectation that they not abandon these things because God, according to the Old Testament, gave these to their generations forever, okay? But Jewish people are not to obsess over these because they're just shadows. They're shadows. In fact, we should only keep them to marvel at the Lord Jesus and how he fulfills these things. He's the substance. But here's the problem. The problem is some people get too tripped up over the shadow, right? They get too tripped up over the shadow, and they think that they're sinning if they don't cling to the shadow. And that is where they're wrong. They are objectively wrong. And the strong brothers are right. The strong brothers and sisters know that if I don't keep the shadow, I'm okay because the substance has come, right? And so that's the truth. And so when Paul in verse 14 says, look, I'm convinced all things are clean in and of themselves, what he's doing is he's looking at the strong believers in Rome, and he's saying, look, you guys are right. Just to let you know. You guys are right. Don't you doubt that. But that's not all he says. You see, if Paul stopped right there, then the Gentile believers would be like, you see, we're right. We could eat whatever we want. We don't have to accommodate you Jewish believers and your desire for kosher food. So you either get with God's program or get lost. That's what they would say. And if that was the case, then Paul solved nothing. He made things worse with this letter. Okay? That is why... He says what he says in the second half of verse 14, okay? So let's look at that. Okay, the first half, he's saying it's true that there's nothing unclean in itself. What's he saying in the second half? He says, still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one, it is unclean. Simply put, if you are convinced that something is a sin, even if it is not a sin, if you then go and do that thing, you have sinned. Why? Because in your mind, you were convinced that God gave you a command not to do that. And therefore, to violate that command would be wrong. It would be to defy what you think God's telling you to do. And so when you go and, and do that, you're now violating what you thought was a command. You're rebelling against God, even if he didn't give the command, right? Let me, let me illustrate it this way. So a lot of you guys know that I'm Jewish, right? I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus, but I eat pork, okay? I like pork. I eat my all-you-could-eat shrimp, so you could get me on gluttony, but not on the shrimp, right? And so here's the thing. Let's say you didn't know that, and you're an angry Gentile that doesn't like me because I'm a Jew. And let's say you really want to stick it to me. 
and, and you want to make me mad. So you're like, you know what? I'm going to show up to this guy's house with a cooked ham, and I'm going to give it to him. And then watch, he's going to get all mad, saying, how dare you give me the ham? But then you show up to my house, and I'm like, dude, a ham. Thanks, bro. I love ham. And then I take it, and all of a sudden you realize your plot is foiled. And then with a smile, you're like, no problem. And then you walk away and plot how you're going to get me next time, right? Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I wasn't offended by the ham because I like ham. But the fact that you thought it would offend me, and that's why you gave it to me, well, you've now made something that's not sinful, given somebody a ham, you've made it sinful because of your intent. You were trying to do harm. So that's how, that's why I'm saying you could take something that's not in itself wrong, but your heart can make it wrong. And that's what happens when, when you think God's given you a command, even if he hasn't, and then you violate it, your heart's made that thing wrong, okay? So God has no problem with you eating shrimp, but if you think he has a problem with it, and then you eat it anyway, you're, you're defying him. You're rebelling against him. You're intentionally doing something that you think he disapproves of, and that's what makes it a sin. So what's Paul's point with this? All food is clean, but if a person does not believe that all food is clean and they start eating the stuff that they think they shouldn't eat, he's saying they've sinned. That is what the text means by a stumbling block. It is not talking about being offended. It's talking about pure pressuring someone to conform to the majority when they believe doing so would cause them to sin against God. That is a stumbling block. If they give in to your pressure and do something that they think is wrong, even if it's not really wrong, in the process, they've sinned against God. They have stumbled. That's what he's saying. So Paul is telling the strong that you can't just say, all things are clean, case closed. No, you have to go back to what he said in chapter 12, verse 18. He says there, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Who is the onus upon for peace? The other person or you? As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So you can't just say all things are clean and I'm going to do what I want. No, as far as it depends on you, you got to figure out how to live at peace with everyone. And then you go back to chapter 13 where he says love does no harm to one's neighbor. Loving God and loving your neighbor are the essence of the law. Your liberty to eat is not the essence of the law. Okay, so even though all food is clean, that's the truth Paul said, it has to be weighed against another truth. I'm supposed to love my neighbor. This is why Paul says what he says in verse 15. Look at verse 15. He writes this, he says, For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. Now, think about what he's saying here. The Roman Gentile Christians were actually hurting their Jewish brothers and sisters by what they were eating. Hurting them is not the same as offending them. The word hurt is the same word for grief, grieving over someone that's died. It's that kind of hurt that they're doing to them. That's not offense. Paul's not saying you're making them mad. He's saying you're breaking their heart. They are mourning because they believe you don't love them. They are grieving that you value your liberty more than their friendship. Like, you're willing to dump my friendship and companionship with you over a lobster tail. Is that what you're telling me? And that is, in a sense, what they're telling them. And so they're sickened to the heart 
by the selfishness of the strong. They're devastated also that their kids are being pressured to abandoning the customs of their ancestors just because they want to fit in with, with your kids who are saying, hey, all that stuff doesn't matter anymore. This is causing hurt, a lot of hurt, a lot of grief. And so two different consequences will happen. First, by the strong believers placing their liberty over food above God's command to love one's neighbor, they're causing the church split. They really are. They are creating a situation where the Jews cannot stay. They are dividing the body of Christ, which is 1,000 times more sinful than keeping a couple extra rules. Second, okay, that's, that's one part. They're just making people who won't eat, they're making them leave. Then the second consequence is some people are going to give in to the peer pressure, and they're going to eat. And in so doing, they've now stumbled, and you've now caused that person to sin. And here's what Paul says. He says this is, quote, to destroy by what you eat the one for whom Christ died. Now, I know what some people are thinking. We are Reformed folk. Christ will not lose anyone for whom he died. What does Paul mean by you'll destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died? And let me tell you this, soft rebuke. If that is where your mind first goes when you read that, then you're missing Paul's point. Okay, this was not written so that we could abstract the words and then go into a debate about the extent of the atonement. That is not what this was written. This was written to deal with a concrete situation where believers are destroying each other over liberty. Okay, so this is a concrete situation. His point in bringing it up is your inconsideration for others can actually get them to fall away from Christ. Now, again, that raises other questions, and and this is why we read the Bible as a whole, to where we know what Paul is saying and what he isn't saying. Okay, we know that everyone who is truly saved will never fall away. We know 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 says, those who do fall away were never saved in the first place. They we thought they were, but it turns out they never really were. That's 1 John 2:19. Okay, so we know those who are really saved won't fall away, but it's not like we know who's gonna be saved. Like Let's put it this way. You guys all don't have an E written on your head for elect. So I'm like, all right, E, E, E. Okay, these people are good. But that one who doesn't have an E, they think they're a Christian, but they're not. We don't know that. We don't see those E's on people's heads, right? And so when we're in the context of the local church, we're looking around. Everybody here, for the most part, saying they believe in Jesus, okay, then we're going to assume these are people for who Christ died, right? And if they walk away from it, It's not good enough to just say, well, they're unbelievers. No, unbelievers are unbelievers. The Bible has a different word for the person who walks away. Calls them an apostate, which is worse than an unbeliever. 2 Peter chapter 2 says the eternal punishment is worse for the person who identifies with Christ and then abandons him than it is for the person who never believed at all, right? And so, yeah, you have real believers who will never fall away. You have false believers who think they're real believers and we think they're real believers, but then one day they do fall away, which proves they weren't real believers. I know that was a mouthful. Um, And so they're apostates. And then, of course, you have the people who never believe at all, right? And so from an observational standpoint, when we're looking around, it all looks the same to us. If somebody's identifying with Christ, we're going to assume that they're a believer. And so what if your actions cause somebody who today says they follow Christ, but your actions push them to walking away. And then they become like all these people out there who are deconstructing their faith, right? Saying, I'm deconstructing the faith because of of what the church did. And think about it. They're pointing their fingers at sex abuse in the church or corrupt pastors or responding poorly to that abuse or not holding physically abusive spouses accountable or not caring about the poor or marrying your church to politics too much 
right? A lot of people are leaving and saying, that's why I'm not a Christian anymore. And there's some truth to that. Now, look, ultimately, they are going to be held accountable for their leaving. You don't abandon Christ just because his people do something stupid. If you're a real believer, you'll never abandon Christ, okay? So the truth is they are responsible for their own abandonment. But Paul's point is that God also takes into account what we've done to wrongly push people in that direction. That's what he's talking about here. And so, yes, theologically, are we going to say Christ dies for somebody who falls away? That's impossible. Because if Christ paid their penalty, but then they pay their own penalty later, that's double jeopardy. God will never be guilty of double jeopardy, okay? If you're paying for your own sins in hell, then Christ didn't pay for your sins, okay? But if you believe on him, then he did pay for your sins, right? So when we take what the Bible says collectively, we know nobody who's truly been paid for by Christ will ever truly fall away. But as I'm saying, from an observational standpoint, you would look around the church, you would say, everybody here is somebody Christ died for, and then two years from now, the people that you might have pushed away with your selfishness, it will look like you destroyed somebody for whom you thought Christ died. That's the point he's getting at here. He's saying we can do better than that by loving each other. That way, if somebody does walk away, it's not on us at all, it's only on them, okay? And think about how pushing somebody to sin against their conscience can actually stumble them to the point of destruction. See, when somebody thinks they're willfully sinning against, when they're willfully sinning against their conscience, like if I really think eating lobster or pork is a sin, but then I do it anyway, then what's going to stop me from breaking the things that really are sins? And what happens is once I care less about what God commands and more about what I want, then the idolatry gets bigger. And what does sin do to people? It enslaves them. The trap gets bigger and bigger, and we start doing more and more sins, and it creates this downward spiral to where the slavery gets worse and worse to where one of two things happens. You either denounce Christ altogether because you love your sin so much. You're like, forget this. I'm gone. I want my sin. Or you're trying to hold on to your sin and Christ, and Christ has his church excommunicate you. In both cases, you're an unbeliever, according to the scripture, right? And so, so the point, the point with this is, we, as believers, should never be the catalyst that sends anybody down that kind of path, okay? If you do so, you are not walking according to love. That's what this section's about. And Paul's saying you're not living according to the gospel. Think about what the gospel is. The God of the universe became a man. He owns everything. He became a poor man and laid himself down and died on the cross for our salvation. And he didn't do this when we were his friends. When did he do this? While we were yet his enemies. While we were yet sinners, he out of love laid himself down for us. And yet we won't lay down a liberty for a brother or sister? That's the point. It's anti-gospel, right? If we are unwilling to imitate our Lord and his gospel, then verse 16 tells you what the the result might be. If you look at verse 16, he says, Therefore, do not let your good be slandered. Your good might be slandered, right? Your, Your knowledge about food in this case is like my example about the blind. You can see the blind can't see, right? And so those who think they have to keep kosher in this context, they're going to be just as mad as blind people would be if they keep falling down at what you're building. The blind people will slander your town. These people who could see, they don't love us. They only think about themselves. And guess what? If the church splits because you force these kosher keepers out, then they're also going to say that church has no love. They're going to slander you. And then the world is going to mock and slander Christ. That's where this leads. 
And all for what? A lobster tail? I mean, because that's really what it's getting at in this chapter. So Paul grounds this in the reality of the gospel in verse 17. He says this in verse 17. He says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is one of the few cases where Paul talks about the kingdom of God being right now. Like most of the time, he's talking about it in the future. Right now, he's talking about it now. It's because it's both, right? There's aspects of it we have now. There's aspects of it that come in the future. And right now, what he's telling you is your life is not about your liberties. Your life is about the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is about righteousness, okay? When Jews and Gentiles believe in Jesus, we get the credit of his righteousness, and then he took the penalty for our sins. That's what the kingdom of God's about. We are made righteous in Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit lives in us to help us start living righteously. We are then placed in in one body to show that through Christ, all the human walls of sin have come crashing down. So, kingdom of God is about righteousness. Second, the kingdom of God right now is about peace, which comes from the Hebrew concept of shalom. Okay, Christ puts us at peace with God and with each other. Shalom doesn't just mean the ending of hostility. It does mean that. That's usually what we mean by peace. But it's even bigger than that. Shalom means wholeness or completeness. It means harmony. It means everything is being set back to how it's supposed to be when there's no sin, no death, no curse. And so God's people are supposed to be displaying the restoration of all things. That's what it means by peace. We're supposed to be doing what we can for that now, especially within the body of Christ. And then third, the kingdom right now is about joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy means contentment. And so God has placed the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, in each believer. So we have that contentment of knowing that God is with us wherever we go, no matter what trial we're in, and that he promises through the Holy Spirit, we will make it to the finish line and we'll never actually be lost if we truly believe. So we have joy in the Holy Spirit. Well, here's the thing. When Christians divide over dumb things, where is the righteousness? When we slander each other and go our separate ways, where is the peace? When we have bitterness towards other believers, where is the joy in the Holy Spirit? You could take that and apply it to your marriages as well, right? You know, where's the righteousness, where's the peace, and where's the joy in the Holy Spirit if you don't love each other and you're ripping each other's heads off? You're just hypocrites, right? The kingdom of God is about peace, righteousness, and joy in the Holy Spirit, and that is where we are located right now in the kingdom of God. And so Paul's point is if you think salvation is about your liberties, eating and drinking, right, then you don't really understand the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is about setting everything right between us and God and us and each other. It's about dying to yourself and living to God and for others. It's about loving others as much as you love yourself. It's about the golden rule that Jesus laid down that you do unto others what you would have them do unto you. And if that is how all believers actually thought, then we would never be debating about our liberties at the expense of somebody's soul. This is why Paul says what he does then in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He writes this. He says, whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. I mean, think about what he just said there. If you serve Christ according to righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, your life is acceptable to God, the way that you are living, right? 
but it also receives human approval. Nobody's going to have major issues with you if you're doing this, at least in the church. See, if you're living for the kingdom of God, you're going to be thinking of ways to serve God and to love your brother and sister as yourself. And if you're doing that, do you think you're going to be causing people to stumble into sin? Do you think you're going to be trying to to tell someone that, hey, it's okay, do this thing that you think is wrong? Or do you think you're going to say, hey, I'm going to eat what I'm going to eat anyway. If you don't like it, then go to a different church. Is that what you're going to say if you're loving people? No, right? No. But if you're laying down those things because you care about the other person, are they going to have anything bad to say about you? No. That's what he's getting at here, okay? So with all that, we know what God says about this. All food is clean. Okay, that's what he said. Or we could say all Christian liberties are okay in and of themselves. But not everyone in the faith has that mature understanding. Some will think some of these things are sin. So if you make a regular practice of this at the church when we gather, you are going to push those people away or you're going to pressure them into sinning against their consciousness. And if you do that, you're destroying their soul. That's what this is saying. That is how heavy this issue is. And that's why I keep saying you can't come to Romans 14 and reduce this chapter down to whether or not you could dance or play cards or get a tattoo. That is not what this is about. This is way, way bigger than that. Okay? This chapter is not talking about disagreements that lead to some people being offended. I don't think you should wear an earring. No, that's not what this is about. This is talking about disagreements that cause people to stumble, to give themselves over to sin. So this issue is, is huge, and it's bigger than our liberty. The real issue is how much do you love others? Are you willing to forego liberties if it prevents the church from being slandered? I would. And in, in the next half of the chapter, he's going to tell us, it'd be better never to eat meat and drink wine again if it prevents the church from being slandered. Are you willing to live in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? We should be. And all that is knowing what God says about this, Right? Now, I haven't told you what this looks like yet in the church. That's verses 19 through 23. That's what we'll have to wait for next time. Uh, And so what we're going to do today as I wrap up is just think about how can we apply what we've learned today. And if you're going to be baptized today, this would be a good time to dismiss yourself and start getting ready for that. I've only got about two more hours of rambling. Um, Just kidding. But anyhow, so the question is, how, how do we apply this in our context? I'm going to be real with you. Honestly... I don't think we have any real Romans 14 issues, and I mean like real Romans 14 issues in most American churches. If we just take ourselves, for example, you have at least seven Jews in this church, which for our size is pretty significant. It's like, yeah, right? Our tribe grows. Um, But here's the thing. Not a single one of us seven keeps kosher all the time. I don't keep it at all. Um, None of us demands that you keep the Sabbath or the feast. I don't even keep the Sabbath. Um, And and so we're all functioning like Paul did. Maybe in a Jewish context, I would keep the law more fully, but in this context, I won't. So we're what Paul calls the Jewish believer that's actually strong in faith. So there's nothing by which you have to accommodate us, right? So this isn't an issue here. Now, if we showed up thinking like, you know what? I think we should wear yarmulkes and prayer shawls as we pray. I can't justify the yarmulke, but Jesus did wear a shawl that had the, 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 the tassels and all that kind of stuff. So, so what, if, what if I thought, well, you know, we Jewish folks, we should wear the prayer shawl when we come to church. I would hope that you wouldn't pull some nonsense replacement theology and demand that we hide our Jewishness in public. Just because Gentiles don't have to become Jews does not mean that Jews have to become Gentiles. 
And the thing is, sadly, that's what a lot of Christians seem to think, and they're wrong. They're wrong. The more visible, the, the more visibly Jewish the Jewish folks are, and the more united you see them with the Gentiles, then the stronger the picture is that Christ has torn down the wall. But again, we're not putting any of that on you guys. We don't really care. I can't even put that shawl on consistently every time. It's too small for me. And even if I did, I probably, probably wouldn't, wouldn't wear it here. Okay, so you don't have us doing that thing here. But in Rome, this was a real issue. And, and it was causing them to split, but not so much here. Now, somebody might say, well, what about Seventh-day Adventists? Because Seventh-day Adventists, they uh, keep the kosher food laws and they believe uh, in, in, on you know, worshiping on the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath. So do we have to accommodate them? No, we consider them disordered, right? They separated themselves from the main church and they follow the teachings of a false prophet, Ellen G. White. And, and a lot of their churches are highly legalistic. And so we leave them to themselves. They wanted to be separate. They're not doing things orderly by the Bible. So you can't accommodate them, right? So again, I'm not finding any real Romans 14 issues that we have to accommodate. And what the Seventh-day Adventists do is not the same as what the Jewish Christians in Rome were doing. These guys weren't wanting to separate. They were just wanting to be accommodated, right? And so it's different. And then you might say, well, what about the Hebrew roots folks these days who think because they somehow read a Strong's Concordance, they're supposed to be... <laughs> anyway, they, you know, they start thinking that you Christians, you've, you've abandoned the Lord because you don't worship on the Sabbath anymore and all that kind of stuff. And so, as I said last time, they're functional heretics, right? They, too, have separated themselves from the church. And the only way you could really accommodate them is if you stopped worshiping on Sundays and switched everything over to Saturday. But then that would put the whole church in sin because the Bible says the Lord's Day is Sunday, right? That's the day we gather, especially for corporate worship. So you can't accommodate those situations. So I say all that to tell you there's really no good parallel that we face in our community. Now, I would say in some parts of America, I do think this chapter, when applied rightly, is the solution to segregated churches across our land. The fact that the most segregated two hours of the week is Sunday morning in most of our states is an absolute insult to the gospel. And I believe the solution to that is this chapter. But look around. This is a diverse church. We don't have that problem here. So again, applying Romans 14 to us isn't, isn't so easy here, okay? So the question is, can we even apply this at all? I think so. And here's the good news. When you don't have the giant problems that Romans 14 is talking about, then maybe you could extract the principles and deal with some of the smaller problems that people like to use this chapter for, like ear piercings or nose piercings or whatever. But even then, I try to stay away from those with the 10-foot pole because that's not what this is talking about. Okay, the closest thing I could think of in America, or just the Western world in general, comes from a quote that I took from R. Kent Hughes when he was quoting someone else named Leslie Flynn. And, and here's what he says. He says, Why disagreements exist today in our churches over certain practices? A Christian from the South may be repelled by a swimming party for both men and women, but then he will offend his northern brother by lighting up a cigarette. Right? So... I can't believe men and women are swimming together. You guys are sinners. And he's like, and they're like, I can't believe you're smoking, right? You're a sinner. Or you might have an international conclave for missionaries where a woman from the Orient cannot wear sandals because showing her feet and her mind's immodest. Yet people from other parts of the world will wear sandals just fine. Or you'll have a Christian wife from Western Canada who thought it was worldly for a Christian acquaintance to wear a wedding ring. Like you're wearing that wedding ring. That's worldly. 
But then you have a woman from Europe in the Lord who thinks it's immoral to not wear a ring because you need to show your, your status um, of marriage. You have a man from Denmark who is too pained to even watch British Bible school students play football, but then the British student shrank once he lit up a pipe, right? And I, and I think you, you get the point with this, okay? That perfectly captures some of the lesser issues here. These aren't personal preferences. These are subcultures, subcultures and parts of this country and other parts of the world where the people kind of have these standards that are extra biblical. But then when they see other people violate those standards, they get a little perturbed. That's the, and so as the, as the church becomes more international, we're going to run into more of those, and that's where this chapter is going to apply. But again, we're not really seeing that kind of stuff here. And so the point is we shouldn't judge or despise each other over any of these kind of things. So then you might be thinking, okay, what should we do then? That's going to be answered next time. But I still want us to think about what we learned today. We know what God has said now about the subject, okay? And because of that, we don't judge. We commit to not putting a stumbling block in front of somebody or to try to get them to do what they think is wrong. We also commit to not grieving them by forcing them to leave because we're insisting on our liberty in public. So the least we could do is at least think that way. And if we're thinking that way, then the application part next time will make a lot more sense, and it'll be easier to do. Now, I do know, for example, I can think of one thing we can do here and that we already are doing that helps. There might be some folks who struggle with an addiction to alcohol, right? And so you're not going to see us here push that we have real wine in communion, okay? Just because back in the old days they had wine, we're not going to push that. Now, this kind of thing is not a problem in European countries, but it is a uniquely American problem. We have a history that's tied to this. We had prohibition and, and all that kind of stuff. So you might say, well, if it's not a problem over there, but it's a problem here, then why do we care? Because we're here. This is where we're at, right? And so let's not insist on our liberty and create a situation where someone who struggles with alcohol either has to leave the church because we're now flaunting it as we're passing it out, or they take a sip and then they are back into their bondage. No. Grape juice is fine. It meets the, the picture of the Lord's Supper, crushed grapes, right? So let's love folks more than we love our liberty because they're more important than our liberty. Christ died for them. He didn't die for your drink. That's what you have to keep in mind. You are commanded to love your neighbor as yourself, not to love your liberty as yourself. So we don't have the wine. We don't have to have it. Now, you can save that for home. It's not wrong to drink wine. It's not wrong to drink beer. You could save that from your home, or you could save that when you're with a group of people that you know aren't going to get stumbled. That's love. But as soon as you know somebody's there who will get stumbled, you don't do that. I think that's probably the most obvious application I could think of for us. Now, one more question, and then we'll be done. What if somebody's offended by what I do? Not stumbled, but offended, because that's how people use this text. So do I have to stop what I'm doing just because somebody's offended? I don't think so. I don't think what this, that's what this is talking about. I think it takes a little more wisdom, but you will never be able to please everybody's little things that upset them. Okay, so, so like, for example, some people in the same church will be like, if you don't hug people, you don't love them. And then if the other people will be like, if you don't shake their hand, then you're a pervert because you're hugging them. You know, you can't please both people. You can't. And in a single group like this, you're going to have people who have these just little personal opinions about stuff. You can't please them, so don't worry about it. Now, it doesn't mean you stick it to them. You know somebody is angry at your hugs, and then with a big smile, you squeeze. No, you don't go out of your way to do that. But it doesn't mean you ignore them either. 
You can try to educate them and say that's not a sin issue. Or you could try to not do it in their presence. It's up to you. Those are options. The key is to let love be the leading principle. Okay, listen, love doesn't mean you always give in. Because if you always give in, then you've become a slave to people's personal expectations. That's a different sin. That's the fear of man, which is an idol. So sometimes love requires you to say, no, I'm not going to order my life by your opinions. And you have to be okay with that. But sometimes it is, I'll lay this down for a little while to try to help you, but I'm not laying it down permanent. It takes wisdom. Just let love lead the way, but you do not have to be a slave to everybody's little individual opinions on stuff. So again, our text this morning has let us know how to think about this. Next time it'll tell us what to do about it. I pray that right now we all think rightly on this, that we'll love one another, we'll display the unity of Christ to a world that is lost and desperately needs him. And so my last thing is for the person who doesn't know the Lord Jesus. You might know about him, but if you have not surrendered your heart to him, and said, you know what, I'm turning away from my sin, I'm turning to you, you are the captain of my ship, then you're not a Christian, right? And if you're not a Christian, then you're still in your sin, and you've got bigger problems about than whether or not to eat shrimp or, you know, not drink in front of people or whatever. Your problem is you've sinned against the God of the universe who's an almighty, righteous, holy judge. He's a consuming fire, and one day everyone will stand before him, the books will be open, and every sin, the trillions of them that you have done, will be made clear, and then you will know that your condemnation is just and deserved. But listen, it doesn't have to be that way. God made a way of of salvation. He so loved the world that Jesus, God, became a man. And then he did what we failed to do. He lived that perfect life and never sinned. And he gives the credit of that perfect life to everyone who believes on him and trusts on him. And then he takes the sin of those people and puts it in his account, and he was punished on the cross for them. So now you would never have to be punished for your sin because he paid your debt. You never have to earn eternal life because he earned it for you and gave it to you. And you receive that by faith alone. Now, once you receive that by faith alone, you get a new heart. He changes you. You will not stay that way. If you say you believed, but then you're exactly the way you always were and you're not being changed, you don't really believe. Okay? But if you believe and you give your heart to him and you trust him with everything, your life will be changed. You will be different. You'll be forgiven of all your sins. So that's what we invite you to do. If you don't know the Lord, come to him today. There's no, like, we're not going to raise our hands and say, come on up here. And I'm like, hey, Anthony, come up here, even though you're already saved so that they feel comfortable to come up. No, we're not doing that kind of gimmicks. You know, this is something you pray to God. While we're praying, you can pray, God, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to turn away from my sins. I want the salvation that you give. Simple as asking him for it. And then afterwards, come talk to us. And we'll gladly walk you through, you know, some of the next steps, like baptism and plugging in with the church. But the one thing we don't want you to do is just walk away still in your sins, facing a judgment to come when there is a way of escape. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to have another song. The elements of communion will be passed out, and then we're going to have three baptisms. So let's go to the Lord. God,